Let us worship God. Let us pray. It's mercy we need from thy hands, O Lord, this morning our forgiveness for our sins, a reassurance in our hearts that abundant grace is shown to those whose hopes only rest in thy blessed Son, Jesus Christ. We thank thee for the confidence we have that thy word brings such great and precious promises to us of such hope, and we pray that uh, it will be shed abroad in our hearts now, and that these uh, strange and fickle emotions of ours will be captured again by the solid truth of thy word, that whosoever believeth in Jesus Christ shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We pray that the comfort and the strength of those words may garrison our hearts and prepare us then fully to sing to thee and pray to thee and listen to thy holy word and profit from it. Sanctify this hour for our good and thy glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Let us sing to God's praise, number 98, O love of God, how strong and true. Number 98.
we read from the letter to the Romans, chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, hear the word of God. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be are summed up In this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let's behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, And don't think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. May God bless the reading of his holy and infallible word. Now we're going to sing a children's hymn. It's number 218. So children, you sing this loudly now. Some people don't know this hymn, and we haven't sung it for a while. 218. A little ship was on the sea. It was a pretty sight. It sailed along so pleasantly, and all was calm and bright. 218.
Now let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Let's bid us in thy word to pray for those in authority over us, the powers that be are ordained by thee. If we oppose them, we are opposing thy choice. And so we come in a measure of frustration and perplexity to thee. For we are being asked to appoint those who will have authority to pass laws and punish wrongdoers and reward those that do right. And yet so often it seems to us that those who do right are being punished and those who do wrong are being commended. And so we look to thee in our desperation and weakness and we cry to thee for help then. Help this coming week as we have some part to play in our country and, and its government. Please uh, show us thy way and Lord be glorified and honored by the choices that men will make We have to pray for all this nation, from the Isles of Hebrides down to the Isles of Scilly and from Norfolk to Pembrokeshire, all the millions in the cities and the country folk. Oh, Lord, what needs they have. How few are acknowledging thee this hour by being still and seeking thy face and asking thy blessing on them. What contempt they have in their heart of hearts for the gospel message that thou didst so love the world as to give thy son and the invitations that whoever believes in him will have everlasting life and they care not for these things. O God, have mercy on our land. Have mercy on those in the royal family. We thank thee for a birth of a child and we pray, Lord, that Her parents will be those who will say that they need help from thee, from Scripture, to raise these children that thou hast given to them, future leaders in the country, in the way of godliness and honor to thee. Lord, save in the royal family as they're in church this morning. We pray that there'll be courage given to the minister to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them also. Help us not to be bought by power and by men's smiles and frowns, but to serve thee first, to set thee at our right hand always. Oh, grant that. We beseech thee, merciful God. So we pray for um, the people from the highest level to those in prison today and those that are sleeping rough in cardboard city today. We pray for them all. We pray for those that seek to stretch out a hand to them, chaplains and missioners. Oh, Lord, do bless them. Oh, open hearts and open minds and convict of sin and then point to the deliverer from sin, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And all thy servants who preach the word of God today, fill them with thy Holy Spirit and come and bless us and instruct us from thy word, and give us patience and understanding, and real profit, that we were glad that we were here, and met with the people of God. O Lord, we pray for our families, our distant ones, our children, our grandchildren, our parents, our grandparents. O Lord, be unto them what they need 
Some of them don't recognize that they need thee yet, but thou art able to work in their hearts and lives such longings. We pray, merciful God, for the people of Nepal and Christians that are gathering there in the ruins of their buildings or in private homes. And we pray, Lord, have mercy on the land and thank thee for the millions from this country and from all over the world that's been sent out. We pray that the corrupt may not get hold of it and that good will come and that those who bravely have gone there to help may be helped by thee to help others. We beseech thee, merciful God, to guide us then in the days that lie ahead. Bless all that we have set our minds to do and help us to do it with all our might and to do it to thy glory. Help our children and our students as they are in this last term now and we pray that thy hand will be upon them and that they will be successful in their studies. So refresh us this morning hour and convict us and pardon all our many sins against thee. Oh Lord, what sins of omission what sins of imagination and thought and word. Ah, yes, and deed too. Lord, we are ashamed of ourselves and pray for mercy to come to us again today in serving Thee, our living God. Hear our prayers, because we ask them all in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, children, I want you to learn from the passage I just read to you, Romans 13 and verse 6, the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Romans chapter 13 and verse 6, the authorities are God's servants and they give their full time to governing. Well, on Thursday, some of your parents and grandparents would be going to a local church hall. They'd be going, they know the church hall, and they've been in it before, but they're not going to go there to sing a hymn, and they're not going to go there to pray, and they're not going to go there to uh, listen to a preacher, and they're not going to go there for a wedding. And they're not going to go there for a funeral. In fact, the name of God is not going to be mentioned at all by anyone there. But they're going there. And they're going with a good conscience. And they're going because it's really their duty to go there. You know why they're going there next Thursday, don't you? And why you can't go there yet, only they can go there. They're going there to vote to vote for a member of parliament for the county of Ceredigion. And it's good for them to do that when uh, Caesar tells us that the, we must come. And when Caesar comes and he says to us, can I use your hall? Well, that's good. We say, yes, you can use our hall. They don't want to use it for dancing and drinking, but they want to use it so that people can vote. There'll be boxes there, standing there with a, a slot in the top, and there'll be a piece of paper, and people will make a cross by the person 
that they are voting for and they'll fold it and they'll put it in and they'll go away. And that's how Daddy and Mummy and Grandpa and Grandma will be voting this week. The powers that be, and that means the police and the magistrates, and it means your teachers in school and your lecturers at university uh, and the officials who check if you've parked on a yellow line when you shouldn't, that all of them are ordained by God. They are officials. And so... to people who oppose the Bible and he says since they have rejected the word of the Lord what kind of wisdom do they have Jeremiah 8 9 since they've opposed the word of God what kind of wisdom do they really have are they really wise if they say oh I don't listen to Jesus are they really wise people so we have to pray for them we don't pray for themselves. We pray, um, God help Daddy and Mummy to vote on Thursday. God help Nana and Grandpa to vote on Thursday. And one day when I am 18 years of age, God help me to, to vote. You've got to pray. I remember when I first voted. I'm really grown up now. I can vote Sometimes there are terrible elections. The, uh, the worst election of all was when people had to choose between a criminal called Barabbas and our Lord Jesus Christ. And all the people voted for Barabbas. They all shouted, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And so they killed our Lord Jesus because they voted for Barabbas. And then uh, there was a terrible election in Jerusalem uh, a couple of years later 
when Saul of Tarsus says, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I said, yes, yes, kill them, kill them. I put my hand up, I voted against them. It's a powerful thing to vote, isn't it? But the best election of all, if those were the worst elections, the best election of all was when God the Father chose God the Son to become our Savior. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my elect one in whom I delight. He will bring justice to the nations. The government will be on his shoulders. So uh, that was the best, that we had a Savior. God chose Jesus Christ to be him. So we asked Jesus then to show mercy to Wales and to show mercy and bless us in Aberystwyth and help us on Thursday, help you and me. We don't deserve his blessing, but that he will pity us and show us his grace so that we can peaceably live our lives and we can gather here and we can have a Christian bookshop and we can give out leaflets and we can knock on doors and we can invite people to our service and we can say, you're sinners, you know that, members of parliament, prime minister, royal family, sinners, and you need a saviour, you do, we're telling you that, and the saviour's willing To have you come to me and I will give you rest, he says. And we want to be peaceably able to say that for all the years until Jesus comes back again. So there we are. Learn that verse from Romans uh, 13 and uh, verse 6. The authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Welcome to our service. uh, some have gone off from our congregation and others are on holiday here. We're glad to see you uh, this morning. That the Lord will bless you. At the close of it, um, the newsletter for May is on the book table in the vestibule. On uh, Tuesday, uh, Trevor Baker comes. He will tell us about Albania. He speaks for the Albania Evangelical Mission. He is a wonderful gift of lifting a congregation and really inspiring us and making things come alive and telling us good news of the spread of the gospel in what was the first officially atheist country in the world, uh, Albania, now where the gospel is spreading. Come along on Tuesday to hear Trevor again. And then... um, on Thursday, I've been asked that there's a special overseas missionary fellowship meeting at 7 o'clock at yeah, 3 Lone, Llewellyn, Weinvaur. Brian Powell, a missionary in the Philippines, will be speaking about the work in the Philippines and Singapore, and all are welcome, and uh, lifts can be arranged. Contact Margaret, Margaret Anthony, about that. And then um, on Saturday morning at 9 o'clock there'll be a prayer meeting uh, that we gather for uh, half an hour or so and we pray together that God will guide us as a congregation about choosing a future pastor. And that will be on Saturday. Friday morning at 8 a.m. Arise to Pray, Salvation Army. The collection last week was £827 and your gifts to the work 
of the gospel here can be placed in offering boxes which are before those two blue doors in the vestibule. 327. Spirit of God that moved of old upon the water's darkened face, come when our faithless hearts are cold and stir them with an inward grace. 327. Let's uh, turn again to Acts 2 and verse 42. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Acts 2 and uh, verse 42. They devoted themselves to fellowship. We often hear that there are three marks of a Bible church. That the first mark is the preaching of the word and uh, the second mark are the ordinances Uh, Lord's Supper and Baptism. And the third mark, then, is uh, church discipline. Uh, Mark Dever has written a a useful book entitled Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And then he adds other marks, like expositional preaching and uh, biblical theology, church leadership. It's a fine book, but I think uh, the, the best description of the marks of a church are here in this verse before us. There are four marks. Of a, of a church. And the first mark is then um, the apostles' teaching, the, the Bible, the, the preaching of the Word of God, the hearing, the ob- obedience of it. And the second mark is fellowship. And the third mark is uh, the Lord's Supper. And uh, the fourth mark is prayer. Those are the four marks. When those four marks are together, then uh, that makes up um, a Bible church. And so fellowship then is there with those three. Um, 
most important, uh, elevated and misunderstood. I want to say, firstly, that the order in which uh, Luke presents these four marks of a real church are important. The first place is the apostles' teaching. Okay, no fellowship can exist without there being, first of all, acceptance and delight in the teaching of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, and Jude, and John, and the others. Imagine there's a scene now, just a couple of days after Peter had um, preached on the day of Pentecost. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there are 300 or more people that are sitting on the grass, and there's a young apostle, and he's standing before them, and he's teaching them. He's teaching them who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And uh, they're asking questions. And uh, some of the questions then become antagonistic, and men are chuckling and breaking up the meeting and scoffing and heckling the preacher and arguing, he didn't say that, Jesus didn't say that, Uh, he didn't mean that, he didn't raise the dead, he didn't give a man born blind sight, he never claimed to be God, and so on, and there's tension in the meeting. But the the young preacher, though he's not done this sort of thing before, he's he's given wisdom and, and grace, and he answers kindly and firmly and silences all those and wins the day. Who are these interrupters? Well, they are agitators. They are spies that are sent from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests to deliberately disturb and break up the apostles' meeting. And there's no possibility, then, of having fellowship with such men, is there? They can't be allowed to remain and break up and disturb our meetings, So, believing the teaching is very important, and it is the first criterion, then, for enjoying Christian fellowship. The Apostle Paul warns Titus of those who infiltrate the meetings, and he tells them this is what he's to do. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him, Titus 3.10. Or the Apostle John, in his brief uh, second letter, he says these words of warning. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Now, that doesn't mean that when uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons come and knock on your door and want to talk to you, you can't say, well, come in, let me, let, let me talk to you. When he's talking about um, don't uh, take him into your house, he's saying don't give him hospitality. Don't say, oh, while you're here, you could, I'll feed you and look after you and uh, help you in any way in your evangelism. We don't do that. Don't take him into your house or welcome him or you'll be sharing in his wicked work. Jesus warns us about false prophets, he says. They're the wolves, but they've got a sheepskin over them. You'll know them by what they say and what they do. He says, uh, this person looks like an angel of light. Actually, it's a devil who is speaking to you. The Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian elders, and he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and won't spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. 
in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. So uh, that congregation then, when a new man came to town and said he was a Christian teacher, they said, ah, let's be sure now. Let's talk to him. Because remember what Paul said, that amongst Christians, heretics would arise and would lead people astray. There's no possibility of communion unless there is union in the apostles' teaching and, and doctrine. And there's agreement about what the New Testament says. What fellowship is light with darkness? So the indispensable precondition for fellowship is truth. So the order is important. They, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Secondly, I want to say that fellowship isn't something that's very narrow. The Pharisees were the people who had no place in their synagogues for someone who had fallen into sin. Sinners weren't welcome, even if they repented. The Pharisees excommunicated them and showed them to the door and said, don't come back again. Pharisees were angry that Christ had healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day, and he was home, he'd wrapped up his stretcher, And he was walking home, and the Pharisees saw him, and they said, burden-bearing on the Sabbath. And they threatened to excommunicate him. And when they saw the Pharisees, when the Pharisees saw the the disciples of the Lord Jesus picking grains of corn and rubbing them and and chewing them, uh, they said, ah, uh, they are working on the Sabbath. They are reaping on the Sabbath day. No fellowship with such sinners. So here was a very narrow unrestricted and angry kind of religion. The Church of Jesus Christ puts a sign outside. It says, a warm welcome to everyone in this building. You live by that now? A man is dressed in women's clothes. And uh, he climbs the steps and walks into our meeting. And the children notice and the children nudge one another and they giggle and they're a bit afraid. And then you explain to the children that uh, you don't approve of this practice, but that you want this muddled man to hear the gospel. That's his greatest need. We are glad he's there, but we're not glad that he's breaking down the distinction that God has made between men and women. You don't threaten to break fellowship with the church. You don't say to them, I won't come to that church anymore unless you tell that man he's not welcome. You don't do that. We're not a bourgeois congregation. We're not. We're not. It may be embarrassing and annoying to some of you. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Pray for that man. Jesus was criticized for sitting down and eating with quizzling tax collectors and other disreputable people. He was called a wine-bibber and a friend of such people. If two men live together and they've adopted a child and the two men and the child come to church. If drug addicts, men smelling of alcohol, prostitutes, male and female, criminals, walk into our congregation, we welcome them kindly. There is something sick in a congregation which would exclude them while fawning upon <coughs> smartly dressed, <coughs> excuse me, 
smartly dressed and uh, well-off unbelievers. Jesus says he didn't come to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners, to summon sinners. Come, come to me, sinners, come to me. This congregation should be rich enough and patient enough and wise enough and kind enough to welcome them all. And that doesn't mean that we condone what they've done or condone what they do when they when they temporarily backslide and fall into old patterns of life again. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to change men and women. He can make a saint out of a sinner. We're sure that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses all those who turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus. We want them to hear the gospel. And one of the ways God uses in order to change men and women is to sense something of the reality of affection and kindness and love and, and godliness and obedience to the word of God that they find when they come to a gospel congregation. The third thing I want to say to you is that fellowship is not simply Christians coming together. I think there's an obsession today with fellowship. Oh, we've got to have fellowship. Special meetings for fellowship. Don't you find that? The cry for fellowship all the time? John Stott once rightly said, fellowship is an overworked word in the contemporary church. And the image it conveys is often a false image. Indeed, the vocabulary of fellowship has become devalued currency. It seldom means more than a genial matiness, or what the Methodists called a PSA, a pleasant Sunday afternoon. Good gossipy get-together over a cup of tea. And we are falling short of the rich, deep, full fellowship that's envisaged in the New Testament. That's what John Stott says, Jim Packer says. What does the word fellowship suggest to you? Cup of tea in the church hall, gossip in the porch after the service, hiking with a youth club, a spell at a Christian holiday centre, touring Scotland or the Holy Land with a coach load of church people. We often say we've had fellowship when all we mean is we've taken part in some Christian social enterprise of this sort but we ought not to talk in such terms. The fact that we share social activities with other Christians does not of itself imply that we've had fellowship with them. Now, there's a place for these activities. There's a special meeting this week for the women. And I've lost my bit of paper with it on. And uh, Rhonda has uh, arranged it and it's going to be, they're going to be making things and it's going to go towards Place Liest. Such occasions are very useful. And I'll give you the full details uh, later on. But um, we're not saying that those times are not happy times. Our point is that we don't equate these activities with fellowship. 
and fellowship with them. That's an abuse of the Christian language. It's dangerous. It's a self-deception. It fools us into thinking we are thriving on fellowship when all the time our souls are lacking because we're not having true fellowship. It's not a good sign when a person can see no difference between uh, sucking a, a boiled sweet and eating a substantial meal. There's a, a significant difference between social activities and fellowship. Fellowship is one of the great words of the New Testament. It denotes something vital for Christian health, central to the church's life. It's of first importance that we understand this morning what Christian fellowship is. And we say, Lord, give a baptism of Christian fellowship to this congregation. So here is the, the first description of the young church. What was the young church, the baby church, like? Well, it was a church that diligently sought truth and diligently thrived in Christian fellowship. Dr. Lloyd-Jones makes the same point. People's ideas, he says, of what constitutes fellowship can be quite pathetic. Some people think in purely social terms. The idea is frequently found in the church. I want to ridicule it because it has nothing to do with Christianity. People even think that fellowship just means having a cup of tea and a biscuit together. I've known others who think of fellowship like this, that during the service, the minister says, now you must all have fellowship with one another, and he tells everyone to stand and shake hands with the people sitting near them, and they all shake hands. Marvelous fellowship. Those are some people's ideas of fellowship, a superficial friendliness, a jollity, a niceness. And so the great word of fellowship is degraded. He goes on to say, I remember an evangelical preacher speaking to me about a certain man who wasn't evangelical at all, quite a notorious liberal. And this preacher said, you know, I find I have more fellowship with him than I do with many evangelicals. Well, I said, it all depends on what you mean by fellowship. If you mean he's a nicer man than many evangelicals, I agree with you. But that is not fellowship. The man is pleasant and affable, and kind. Doesn't mean you can have fellowship with him. You can pass the time of day with him. You don't have to have arguments, and disputes, and quarrels with him. But not fellowship. I know a church, and it's now abandoned, it's evening service, and they have what they call fellowship. Oh, I said, what, what do you do? Well, we play pool, they said. Or we play table tennis. And we have uh, refreshments and we talk together. Christians coming together is not fellowship. Fourthly, how the New Testament defines fellowship. Now the word that's found here um, is a well-known word, koinonia. Um, it's the word for common. Let me give you some examples of uh, how the New Testament uses the word. Peter's on the roof. He has a vision. A sheet is let down. And there are all sorts of foods and animals there. And many of them are unclean. And Peter says, I can't eat. I can't eat what's common. What's unclean. 
Peter says. Koine, it's the same word that's here in fellowship. To have fellowship is to have something in common. Again, the Greek language of the New Testament is not classical Greek. Classical Greek had died out as a spoken language, like medieval English has died out, and we have now 21st century English. Well, they had a, a Greek language, the kitchen language, and it was called Koine Greek, common Greek. So when we read that the um, apostles had fellowship together, it's saying they had some things in common. They were engaged in a, a great emphasis of what they shared together. You have in the Bible this koine word, um, Titus 1.4, a common faith. Jude 3, common koine salvation. Paul tells the Philippians, all you share koine in God's grace with me. It's a common denominator of every Christian that we have, that we have grace, saving grace, that we all have it. Well, what does that sharing amount to? What do we have in common? Well, you, you can exalt this, can't you? Uh, John, in his uh, great first letter, and the opening chapter, and the very beginning in the third verse there, he says, we have fellowship together, and our fellowship is with uh, the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That is John's definition of what a Christian is. A Christian is a man or a woman who has fellowship with God the Father. He can look into his great smiling face and say, Abba, Father, and with God the Son. And he's his Lord and his Savior and his prophet, priest, and, and king. So fellowship is with Father and Son. Fellowship is with God. And so then um, it's the hub. And the closer to the hub you get, the, the spokes are, then the closer they are together. And our fellowship is with one another because our fellowship is with God the Father and with God the Son. I learned a very useful phrase, um, a buzzword from Professor John Murray and heard him lecture on it. And the phrase is, wait for it now, corporate sanctification. That's the phrase. Now, it's not a difficult idea, though. There are two multi-syllable words. It is referring to the mysterious influence that Christians have over one another. That's what it is, okay? It's referring, in other words, to the one another passages in the New Testament. You're familiar with them. You're familiar with the negative phrases that you find there, um, like, not judging one another, not biting one another, not devouring one another, not provoking one another, not envying one another, not lying to one another, not speaking evil of one another, not grumbling against one another. Those things are banned. It's a, um, a zone in which such practices are, are forbidden. And then there are the positive phrases. Uh, receiving one another. Being kind and tender-hearted towards one another. Forbearing and forgiving one another. Practicing hospitality to one another. Admonishing one another. Instructing one another. 
comforting one another, submitting to one another, praying for one another, bearing one another's burdens, loving one another, exhorting one another, encouraging one another. Now that is Christian fellowship then. The one another passages. Not doing some things, but definitely, positively doing other things. And in the doing of them, not in the admiring of them or talking about them, but actually practicing them, you practice Christian fellowship. So, you know about personal sanctification, um, the, your relationship with God, your desire to please Him and do His will and serve Him and love Him. Take up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. This one thing I do. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's personal salvation. But then there's our duty to one another. Our responsibility to one another. And the influence that we have over one another in corporately now as a body of Christ. Hebrews 10.24 Let us consider how to stir one another up. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging encouraging one another or James says confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed now that's fellowship you know this hunger for fellowship that because there's a misunderstanding of it because it seems so, so nice and happy and, and easy. You know, it is not invariably easy to have Christians as your friends. It is not. It's a responsibility. There are Christians that are carrying very heavy burdens. A Christian can be garrulous and not stop talking. A Christian can be very lonely and suck you into her life. A Christian may want to be ignored and always want her space. A Christian may be having problems with alcohol. And we're under obligation to help Christians, aren't we? And we're under obligation to receive help. Not to hurry off and have nothing to do with other Christians when we need their assistance. Can there be fellowship without sacrifice? I'm saying to you, if this congregation is going to flourish, well, we know it'll flourish by the other marks, by prayer and by the preaching of the Word, and it's going to flourish by true doctrine but it's only going to flourish when this body life also flourishes which is the essence of real fellowship now it seems to me there are three things involved in real fellowship that fellowship is firstly a means of grace it's it's a holy activity it's a spiritual activity and you know whenever you are involved in any holy activity You yourself are the first beneficiaries. You yourself become stronger because you stood 
in the Owen Glyndwr Square and gave out leaflets and talked to people and felt you were the least able person to do that. But you were blessed when you went home at 12 o'clock. You were glad that you had been there. We seek to encourage one another to follow the Lord Jesus. We, we share our experience. Uh, it was like this with me, we say. And the Lord was very good to me. And the Lord helped me at this time. You, you don't know what help you can be. Some of you students don't know how much you've helped me by some of the things you said that you shared with me. You don't realize how important that's been to me. I spoke to a woman last Sunday, and she's caring for her husband who has dementia. How are things going? I said, oh, they are going fine, she said. They're going fine. Yeah. She spoke of how the Lord was helping her in her home. She gave a humble and a strong testimony to this. And so we say how people have helped us, and we share it with one another, and that's it's a testimony to us to say it to you and it's a testimony to you to understand and agree with what we are saying. Paul has a constant plea. It's sometimes in his letters. If he wrote the letter to the Hebrews, then it's eight times. Eight times in Paul's letters, he asks people to pray for him. You're not forgetting to pray for me, are you? Please pray for me. I've got a, a great effectual door. There are many enemies. Please pray for me, he says. Fellowship is a pastor praying for the congregation. Uh, praying is coming along on Tuesday night and then hearing what are the needs of a congregation and then praying for those needs. It's a means of grace. Sunday nights in the manse, I, I try to create a an atmosphere that honors the Lord's day and honors the Lord and helps us spiritually to talk together. We have fun, of course. But um, we want godly fellowship with one another. It's a means of grace. Secondly, it's a test of the life of God. It's a barometer that we really have the life of God in our hearts. That that we are people that encourage Christian fellowship. I, I read the letters of the New Testament. I, I see such a close bond between them and between the letter writer, the apostle, and the people he's writing to. I see a, a, a degree of commitment and care and plain speaking. He says, there are two women in the congregation, and here are their names, Euodia and Syntyche. And they're not getting on together. And he tells them publicly in a letter to the whole church that they have to be of the same mind in the Lord. He tells them that because he's concerned that the fellowship is being hurt because of this. Well, some of you I know, uh, I respect you. We're, we're different personalities, aren't we? We're not like a cult that we're all the same. We, we're, we're very different, and some don't want to talk about their experiences or share their problems with other people. 
And uh, I don't want you to pry. We have no right to get in each other's way, and we have certainly no right to get in one another's hair. Let's honor one another's personalities. Let's honor the modesty that some have. But there is nobody in this congregation who doesn't have a daily problem with being a 24-7 Christian. A holy follower of Jesus Christ. That it's a challenge to us every day. And at the end of every day we have to say, Sorry, Lord. I wasted so much time today. And we acknowledge that. And a man who pretends otherwise is going to just destroy himself with a dissimulation. He's not going to be able to have fellowship with others. He'll shrink from it. He won't want to talk about spiritual things because he'll be afraid that his, uh, his weakness and his sins are going to be detected. He is not walking in the light. And it is only when we walk in the light that we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And thirdly, fellowship is a gift of God. NEB translates the benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and fellowship in the Holy Spirit be with you all. So, fellowship is, is in union with the Holy Spirit. It has to be, doesn't it? it, it otherwise, it's in us. And we're not very smart, and we're not very clever, and we're not very eloquent, and we're not very beautiful people, are we? But all that we owe, we owe to, all that we have, we owe to the Lord. The Lord's helped us. All the good things in us come because God has given us the Holy Spirit's graces, love and joy and peace. And so let's walk in the Spirit and pray in the Spirit and love in the Spirit. And let's culture a dependence on the Holy Spirit. When you put your key in the door and go into the home again, you say, Holy Spirit, be with me. When you go to your office and go to the desk there, you say, Holy Spirit, be with me. When you go to school and get on the school bus, you say, Holy Spirit, now help me and and be with me. You, You culture this sense of your own weakness and your great need of the Holy Spirit, and that's where fellowship is earthed and grounded. The fifth thing I want to say is that our communion is to be a reflection of the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What Christians most have in common is the triune God. That's what we have in common. That's the bedrock. That's on. We stand on it and we're going to this, aren't we? The foundational idea of fellowship is Trinitarian. In other words, the Son has always had fellowship with the Father. Always. He's always been there to love and admire and speak to and rejoice in. 
and expresses affection for. There's nothing that causes any tension between them, any problems whatsoever. There are no problems in the relationship of the Father and the Son. There's no hang-ups at all. There's a freshness in the relationship and a creativity and a fascination and always growing joy and exploration, no alienation at all. They share everything together, the Father and, and the Son. They share a, a common being. I and my Father are one. They are the same substance. They are the same essence. Uh, Christ partakes fully in the being of, of the Father. And uh, they have the same attributes. They have the same designations. They have the same functions. They have the same name. Jehovah and Jehovah Jesus. They share equality in the midst of the throne. They have the same sovereignty. There's one government in heaven. There's one monarchy. The, the Lord Jesus Christ is there in the very middle of the throne of God. He has all authority in, in heaven and earth. John sees the, the Lamb slain in the midst of the throne. He has the whole world in his hands. He has cosmic Universal authority, our Jesus, he shares in the authority of his Father. Um, they have the same knowledge and self-understanding. There's nothing in God the Father's nature that's hidden from God the Son. God isn't a perplexity to himself. He knows everything in himself. He never says to himself like we have to say to ourselves so often, why did I say that? Why did I do that? God the Father never says that. He knows himself through and through. And Jesus knows God through and through. He knows him exhaustively. All that the Father has, he's given to the Son. So he never has to plead with the Father. Why don't you tell me? Tell me more about yourself. You know, a man will come to me and he says to me, uh, Do you know my son? I don't know my son. Do you know him? The father knows everything about his son, and the son knows everything about his father. He has no secrets. They have no secrets from one another. You know, every earthly father hides some things from his wife and from his children. He's ashamed of some things, and he wants to forget them. He can't forget them, but he doesn't want to talk about them. But the whole life of God is transparent to his son. There's no little kutch under the stairs somewhere, no dark corner of heaven where God keeps his secrets from his Son. The Son knows the Father exhaustively, and the Father knows the Son exhaustively too. So the Father has told the Son all, all that you need to live a full Christian life for the next 60 years. The Father has told the Son, um, you know, there's the, the men and women in Aberystwyth and, and they need help about how, uh, how to be better husbands, how to do their work better, how to be good neighbors, how to be good church members. And Jesus has told us, in the Bible is enough. We're not saying, oh, if only I had another, another letter of Paul or another gospel. We've got everything that we need to live a godly life. They share in common love for the people of God. The Father loved us from the 
before the creation of the world. He gave us to his son before the creation of the world. The son received us. He came into the world to love us and die for us. And he prays for us. The father and son are one in their love for the people of God. So I am saying that it is from that fellowship between the father and the son that our fellowship then emerges and is nurtured and, and grows. It's from the withness of the word that was with God and was God. So here's the Lord's Day and uh, it's the hour of worship. It's the, it's the chief hour of the week for us and, and we meet here. And the fellowship that we are to have, that we aim for, at this hour of worship is to be identical with the fellowship that God the Father has with God the Son. And we'd be satisfied with nothing less than that. A breezy liveliness. A chatty, folksy, well-met, good fellow. Has no place in the people of God. It has to have all the texture of holy eternity and loving eternity. And our fellowship is with the Lord Jesus. We share in his status and his standing. We share in his spirit. The very spirit that was in Jesus Christ is in each one of us today. We share in the sufferings of Christ. Um, our brothers and sisters in the world in the last months have known horrible, terrible suffering for his sake. Jesus told us that this would happen what they've endured in Pakistan and North Korea and Iraq and Syria and Nigeria. It's not unexpected. Paul saw himself as crucified to the world and the world was crucified to him. They thought of Paul as dispensable. They thought of Paul as negligible, as unnecessary, as contemptible in their eyes. And it's a challenge to ourselves. We want recognition. We want prestige. We want to announce 50 years in Aberystwyth as a preacher. We want that sort of prestige, don't we? Very dangerous. We've got to be prepared to be non-entities with no right to be treated any better. Not to share a single accolade because we're following a crucified Savior. We share in Jesus' inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us. When we see him, we will be like him. And until then, all things are ours, and all things work together for our good. And our fellowship is with one another. That's our common life. We are one in the body of Christ. We've been baptized by the Spirit into one body, and so we are refreshed and we are invigorated by the Spirit of God. We, we drink from it. That's, the, that's fellowship. We share our material goods in common. There are people in the congregation in need. I mentioned it on Tuesday. And there was an immediate response to help a family in great need at this present time. Checks were written. Inquiries were made. Because no one must be in need in the congregation. And we bear one another's burdens. 
the stress, the pain, the aching heart. And that's fellowship. I guess there are busy bodies in this congregation, though I don't know of any, as there are busy bodies in every congregation. But that is better than us all being marbles in a bag and ignoring one another and letting people carry their burdens alone. You can get involved privately. And you have to. There are some people in the congregation at the present time, I don't know how they are managing to bear the burdens that God has given them to carry. We're to encourage one another in evangelism. We're to give support as we can to them. And we worship together. And that is fellowship. We can't survive without us being in the stated place on a Sunday, on a Tuesday, listening to one another, then praying together, reading the Word together, giving together. Let the children see us, how serious it is for us to sing God's praise and give and listen to the Word of God and comment on it afterwards. Lord, bless your Word to us now and help us to experience true fellowship in this congregation, deeper, stronger, richer, more enduring than we have ever known it before. Like the early church, grant that blessing to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got it, Joe. Hymn number 537. 537, Lord, from whom all blessings flow, perfecting the church below. Steadfast may we cleave to thee, love the mystic union be. Where's these great hymn on Christian fellowship? 537.
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.